This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. Sadly, I am still uh, testing positive for COVID um, and with uh, two stubborn red lines on my test every morning. I'm actually feeling better, but it's been like mild flu. Not very nice. And big love out to all of you who are suffering with COVID at the moment. If you are, it seems to be going around quite a bit. Well, look, over the last three weeks, we've somewhat forgotten about COVID, I think, haven't we? Because of the horrifying invasion of Ukraine by Putin's army. And I say Putin's army deliberately because I really want to believe that the majority of Russian people would not support this war if they really knew what was happening. I was overwhelmed with admiration the other day by the bravery of Marina Ozyanikova, the Russian TV executive who ran onto the main TV news program like BBC One Six O'Clock News with a big sign saying that there should be no war. And it was a stunning protest against Kremlin censorship. Did you see it? What an incredibly brave woman. She knew probably that, uh, well, I think more than probably, she knew full well that she would be arrested for doing that and uh, that there was a high risk of her being put in prison for up to 15 years under new laws about spreading uh, supposedly fake news about the war. But she was actually released uh, with a fine, and um, uh, but, but it said in reports with her that she's still fearing for her life, which is not really surprising. Um, there's quite a lot of people who have opposed Putin in the last 20 years who have died since. And the Washington Post published a list in 2017 of 10 critics of Putin who have died violently or in suspicious ways, including the leading politician, opposition politician, Boris Nemtsov, uh, lawyers, journalists and spies, of course. In 2016, the British High Court judge concluded that Putin probably approved the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko. Theresa May, whilst Prime Minister, accused Putin's regime of being responsible for the Novichok chemical weapons attack in Salisbury in 2018. And of course, the latest uh, Russian opposition leader, Alex Navalny, uh, was poisoned um, and survived, but is in prison now on a two and a half year uh, jail sentence of fraud. And he's also in court uh, under further charges of fraud with the possibility of a further 15 years in prison. The Reuters uh, Institute for the Study of Journalism in 2010 said that 19 journalists have been killed in Russia since uh, 2000 and the Committee to Protect Journalists states that 58 journalists have been murdered in Russia in the last 30 years. So clearly it is a very brave and courageous thing to do to stand up to Putin's regime. It is incredible that ordinary Russian citizens are willing to take a stand um, in such an environment. The Harvard Gazette reports that more than 15,000 people have been detained by security services and police for protesting since the invasion of Ukraine started. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, I'm talking about it because it's topical, of course. But we are asking the question in our current box set, who is Jesus? And studying the Gospel of Mark, uh, or rather the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark, to find out more. And the question I want to ask today is, why was Jesus killed? See, I want to suggest to you that the will of Jesus was not too dissimilar from Putin's Russia. Let me let me explain that in more detail. Well, about 50 years before Jesus was born, the semi-democratic Republic of Rome embarked on a period of military expansion under Julius Caesar. 
now, of course, Julius Caesar was assassinated, but his nephew Octavian uh, shared power as one of the two proconsuls with uh, Mark Antony. But Mark Antony died, and then uh, Octavian uh, seized complete control over the empire, uh, which included North Africa, Middle East, and Southern Europe, and declared himself Emperor Augustus. In other words, emperor over everything. Now, how did they do that? How did the Roman Empire become so dominant? Well, first of all, the Roman army is the main reason. They're, they were dominant and ruthless, fully paid up soldiers, uh, standing armies with and really advanced military equipment. Sound familiar? They operated a scorched earth strategy, brutally repressing rebellion and dissent. Brutal violence was used to terrorise local populations into submission. The Roman cross, which we're so familiar with, was the most public way of dealing with rebellious subjects. So uh, when the Roman army invaded the town where they encountered rebels, they didn't just kill them with a sword. They would literally nail, nail them to crosses and then stand those crosses up alongside the roads into that town. And usually there'd be, well, there could be tens, hundreds of these crosses with these rebels nailed to them. Of course, they would die, but then the bodies of these rebels would remain on the crosses. They'd leave it there. They wouldn't bury them, and they'd allow the bodies to decompose on the cross or wild animals to eat the carcasses. It was designed to terrorise the local population. Uh, the Romans imposed their own cultural, economic, and religious systems on the local populations across the empire in order to extract the wealth uh, from those areas and also control power. In Judea, where Jesus was born, new Roman towns were, were built. Um, puppet leaders like Herod and Pontius Pilate were installed and Roman taxes, of course, were imposed to extract wealth. Now, systems of domination by tyrants and dictators have existed throughout human history. The Romans and Putin's Russia, is, they're, just, they're, just, they're just some of the systems of domination. Depending on your political viewpoint, you'll identify different ones. But they generally share four characteristics. First of all, they're ruled by a few, typically a king, an emperor or a president, and they're supported by a small group of administrators, bureaucrats and military leaders. Most, most of the population don't have a say in how things are run. Um, and so just like Putin is surrounding himself with um, allegedly a loyal mafia-like group of people, uh, in, including military leaders and oligarchs, so the Romans recruited local mafia like Herod and, um, and the Jewish tax collectors that we're familiar with, like Zacchaeus. Um, uh, secondly, these systems are economically exploitative. Ruling elites shaped the economic system in their favour. So just as Putin and his oligarchs have allegedly stolen the state assets of Russia to pay for yachts and football clubs and cars and houses in London and Saint-Tropez, so the tax collectors would line their own pockets and Herod would build his palaces. These systems are thirdly systematically violent. The ruling classes would use violence and the threat of violence to control the local populations, but they also use the violence of war to secure themselves and acquire more wealth. It's rapacious, they just acquire more and more. Just like it appears that many of Putin's critics have been executed, we know from uh, uh, historical evidence that Herod executed members of his own family who he felt threatened him, um, and of course, uh, you'll famously know from the accounts of uh, the Bible that he ordered the execution of all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem when he was searching for the baby Jesus. You know, the wise men had come along and said, there's a new king of the Jews and, and this, this boy would be born in Bethlehem. Well, Herod just basically killed all the male children under the age of two so that they would eliminate any potential threat, hopefully catching Jesus, this baby Jesus in, in, in that killing. 
Um, uh, fourthly, um, these systems of exploitative power are legitimized by religion generally. Kings are crowned in the name of God and religion is used as a way for controlling the local population. So just as the head of the uh, or the current head of the Russian Orthodox Church is a close Putin ally and has endorsed this war in Ukraine, Herod appointed Jewish high priests from families who were loyal to him who would legitimize his power. So uh, there are many examples, as I say, of domination by the few over the many. Um, and Putin's regime is not is not does not stand isolated at all. But our current awareness of Putin's regime might help us get a glimpse into Jesus's world and help us understand why Jesus was killed. So turn with me to Mark 8, verse 31 to 38, if you've got a Bible or you've got the Bible app. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus talking, that the Son of Man, referring to himself, um, his favourite description of himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, that is, Jesus did. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will, uh, and for the gospel will save it. What, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Strong words there from Jesus. And strong words and possibly puzzling words, not perhaps not talking, talking about the future and the present. And yeah, I'm not sure Wow, what the disciples would have made of that. Well, let me just explain that contextually, obviously what we're reading here is what Mark is writing and it's his account. He's got a narrative and he's got an agenda with how he's writing. Um, and earlier, Jesus is recorded by Mark in chapter 8, verse 15, as warning his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, which kind of confused the disciples. They were like, what is he talking about? He's talking about bread again. What's he talking about bread? What Jesus is actually saying is be aware of the influence of these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And if you were to summarize the, what the power base was, who, who dominated the religious and political power at the time, it would be the Pharisees and the Herodians. And so and, and the Pharisees represented the religious authorities and the Herodians represented the political, which were intertwined. So just like Putin's regime, it's alleged has executed so-called enemies of the state. Herod is also known for executing enemies of the state. And the most recent um, of Herod's critics is John the Baptist. And if you're familiar with that story, you'll know that earlier in Mark's account, John the Baptist has been executed by Herod. And, and given that John the Baptist was Jesus's relative and likely mentor, it's not hard to see that one, Jesus was heartbroken by that, but next, but also that he knows that he's next on the kill list. So Jesus tries to explain this to his disciples and he tries to tell them that he expects to be killed in fact he almost he says i must be killed um and and of course that's quite shocking um and one of his disciples peter's having absolutely none of it and he takes jesus aside and begins to argue with him and i imagine he used pretty strong language to argue with jesus see peter thought that jesus was going to lead a revolution um he might not have understood how but he was pretty convinced that jesus was 
like the charismatic revolutionary leader that God was going to use to overthrow this oppressive religious cultural system. Uh, People will know that there had been previous attempts at revolution, like charismatic leaders had tried to gather um, armies of men to throw off the political revolution oppression of the of the Roman state, but we know that they they were fa- they had failed, um, and and we know that Peter and many men around him at that time would have been looking for another charismatic leader to follow to lead a revolution. We also know that Peter was passionate, aggressive, and strong. We know that him and his um, and his brothers and friends were uh, who were disciples of Jesus were largely fishermen. They were manual workers. They would have been strapping men, strong men. And we know that they would have been up for a fight. And on one occasion, he uses a sword to attack a soldier who's been sent to address Jesus, uh, arrest Jesus, and he cuts his ear off. Which, you know, again, we kind of through our kind of uh, spectacles of of the future, we 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 tend to say, oh, it's a small thing. No, it wasn't. He attacked him. He picked up a sword, so he was right there, ready to do it. And so it's not surprised that he takes Jesus aside and says, "What do you mean you're going to get killed? No, 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 no. We're going to win this revolution." But Jesus is also up for an argument because he has already had to deal with his own fears and anxieties about knowing about the risk that he might get killed. You might remember the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan um, in the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism. You can read about that in Matthew 4. Um, But it seems that Jesus has known for a long time that his decision to stand up to this corrupt and oppressive regime, this political religious regime, might get him killed. And he's probably spent hours agonising over it because, let's face it, who wants to uh, like be killed no one you know um, in the same way I bet Marina was agonising over her her decision to stand up and uh, stand up against Putin's regime you might notice that Jesus also if you know the story of Jesus will know that just before he's arrested in Gethsemane he asks he asked God whether there's any which way any way that this can be achieved without him dying and so I think Peter sorry I think Jesus's argument with Peter is like stop it Peter I know what you're thinking I want to take the easy route too I want to avoid losing my life as well but you've got I have got to go with this and it and even if that means I get killed now I can imagine the family and friends of Marina uh, Ozyanikova and Alex Navalny saying the same thing to them listen guys if you do this Marina if you do this Alex if you do this you're going to risk getting yourself killed there are consequences for you. And what's more, there's consequences for us as your family and friends. We might even get imprisoned and killed as well. And Mark records here, Jesus having the same conversation with his family and friends. It's like Jesus is giving his family and friends an off-ramp. He's going, here's your moment to leave if you want to, because things are going to get a bit more intense. Um, If you do want to follow me into this, then you need to understand that you might lose your life. You might get killed as well. And there's this, moment of high emotional tension for Jesus he's about to find out who in his team are willing to go on that journey with him and you can see the emotional tension for him in the emotional language that he uses using almost apocalyptic words and uh, images to describe the tension Marina Ozyanikova, when she was interviewed by Reuters, um, said her actions were intended to send a direct message to the Russian public. Don't be such zombies, she said. Don't listen to this propaganda. Learn how to analyse information. Learn how to find other sources of information, not just Russian state TV. She added, they can't put us all in prison if we all protest. Such courage. Such courage against the tyrannical leadership of Putin. Knowing full well that she may die for saying that. 
She was encouraging hundreds of thousands of people to show the same courage. Jesus gathers a crowd to him as well as his disciples and issues the same rallying call. If we want to overthrow this tyrannical system of political, military and religious domination, then we need to be willing to risk losing our own lives. So not many weeks after this, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover, which is the most important Jewish festival. Jerusalem is packed with people um, and he enters the city, Mark says, from the east riding on a colt. And his followers are chanting words that link him with the ancient Israelite King David and proclaim him the King of Peace. Now it's thought that at the similar time, the Roman governor Pilate would have been arriving in Jerusalem for Passover as well, with all the pomp and the power of empire, and would have been entering Jerusalem from the west, most likely ahead of a squadron of Roman cavalry. The King of War entering from the west, a King of Peace entering from the east. Quite a contrast. It was intentional. Not long after he's arrived, Jesus then stirs up mayhem in the temple by driving out the market traders who for years have run their stalls in the temple courts. Uh, and, and, and he says, it almost sounds like he's angry. He says, you've made my house of prayer a, a den of robbers. And at this point, Mark, in Mark eleven eighteen, 18, um, Mark records this. Uh, in response, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began to look for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So Jesus has won over the crowd. There's no doubt about it. And the religious and political authorities are in fear of what he might be able to do. We need to remember that the, the religious elite, and it's so it by no means was Jesus against Judaism or Jews, he was against the oppressive corruptness of the religious elite. <clears throat> and we need to remember these religious elite were largely, quote unquote, in bed with the Roman governor. They legitimized Roman rule, just like the current head of the Roman, uh, the um, Russian Orthodox Church uh, is legitimizing Putin's regime. Uh, and repeatedly during that week, Jesus goes head to head with this political religious regime and you can read about it just read mark 11 through to 15 uh, mark chapter 11 verse 3 to 15 you, you'll you'll see it all right there in front of you so so um the religious political authorities they publicly try to undermine jesus's authority and popularity with the people they question his integrity and character they question his understanding and application of the law of moses they do everything they can to discredit jesus in the eyes of the public but for his part, Jesus describes the religious leaders as wicked tenants of a vineyard who kept all of the produce for themselves. And honestly, like that would have meant a lot more to them than it does to us, even though we can grasp a bit what that means. He tells them that they will be punished most severely for oppressing the poor whilst luxuriating in their stolen wealth. And he tells them that they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And he prophesies finally that the enormous temple, which is the symbol of religious and political power, in that time, in that state, will be destroyed. Is it any surprise that the religious and political leaders were looking for any way that they could to kill Jesus? So, at the end of that week, they arrest him. They pull him into what we would call a kangaroo court, uh, the Sanhedrin. It's a religious court, um, and they would have tried to prosecute him on a religious crime. Um, 
And it says in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole of the Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. For they did not find any, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple with human hands and in three days build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that this man, these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. They got him. This group of corrupt, religious and political mafia could not pin anything on Jesus, but they knew he was a major threat to their corrupt regime, so they condemned him to death on the spurious charge of blasphemy. Friends, today the question I invited us to think about was, why was Jesus killed? Now from the account written by Mark, it seems that Jesus was killed because he had the courage to stand up to the corrupt an oppressive system of political, religious and military domination that prevailed during his lifetime. But there is another question, another similar question about Jesus's death, which asks what was the purpose of Jesus's death? Why did Jesus die? The answer to that question is central to the letters of Paul. It is, uh, it is uh, talked about in the Gospels of Jesus and centuries and generations of theologians have discussed and come up with um, reasons for this and I will talk about that in another episode of this box set but for today I want us to consider Jesus's example of courage in the face of overwhelming, overwhelming evil. Could Jesus inspire us to stand up against evil and oppression where we see it in our world? Right now, there are many Ukrainians and Russians standing up to the oppression of Putin's regime. How can we join them in prayer and action? Many of you probably already are. Um, but maybe that means writing to your MP. Maybe it means uh, considering hosting a Ukrainian refugee in your home. Maybe if you can't offer that hospitality, you might consider befriending a Ukrainian refugee. And we are indeed working with churches in Bristol to set up hubs where we can provide befriending services to Ukrainian refugees who are going to come to Bristol. Some are already here. Um, maybe it means uh, you sending messages of encouragement on social media to those who are resisting this regime. Friends, we can respond to this with the same courage uh, that Jesus um, showed when he was standing up to a similarly a corrupt, oppressive regime. But maybe on a more personal level as well, you are facing a huge personal challenge and you, you need some courage to face it. Maybe it's an illness or um, you are grieving, maybe a financial challenge, maybe a challenge in your job or vacation. Maybe you're experiencing a relational challenge, maybe a breakdown in relationship. May God give us the courage, the heart to endure and the courage to keep going when we want to give up. In English, the word courage, I think, comes from the French um, 
cur, which means heart. And um, it may be that you need heart at the moment. You just need God's heart. You need God to enlarge your heart. May God enlarge your heart with courage as you face the challenges that you are currently experiencing. And we would love to pray for you, whether that's online or in person. We would love to pray for you that God would give you courage where you need it.